I love Harvest. It's good to be with you again. And I'm very grateful for the privilege of declaring to you the word of Christ. And it comes uh, to us tonight from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you wish to follow along, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to it. Let's pray for understanding. <clears throat> we thank you, our Father, for the word that is coming to us. We ask that you would help us to see Christ and to worship you as we hear the word. We, we need you to come and to help us, to teach us, to move our hearts to deeper faith and greater love for you, for your word, for your church, and for the world. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Is it possible for you to be too strong to be useful to Christ? I ask the question because I think that it is, if strength is understood in a certain biblical way. And I get this from the paradox that appears in 2 Corinthians 12.10. When I am weak, then I am strong. When I learn the deep limitations of my own resources 
and face debilitating hardships that make me cry out to God for relief, then I am in a place where the strength of Jesus comes and does what I am not able to do. But when I am strong, self-reliant, confident in my own abilities, forgetful of my need for grace and my dependency on grace, then I fail. So, brothers and sisters, let me say to you and to me, let's not be strong in our own eyes. Together, let's boast in weakness and enjoy the power of Christ that rests on those who come to Him for strength. You may know that 2 Corinthians was written during a time when its author, the Apostle Paul, was under attack. There were people in Corinth who wanted to discredit him. They belittled his ministry, and they insisted that the church do the same. He wrote the letter to, to convince his brothers and sisters that he loved them. God knows I do. That's what he wrote in chapter 11. To urge them to keep gathering resources for him to take to Jerusalem to help the poor there. You can read about that in chapters 8 and 9. And then also to address the views of those who were seeking to turn the church against him. What an extraordinary set of circumstances. And what a difficult letter to write. What kind of letter would you write if you were under attack like that? Paul really did some great things in the almost two years he spent with his friends in Corinth. And, and, and now folk were turning against him, calling him names. And yet Paul loved Christ and he loved the church. So under the power of the Spirit, he wrote this letter. And now we have the letter. And that's good, isn't it? It's good. Chapter 12 contains an amazing confession. I don't think that there is a more profound self-disclosure in all of Paul's letters than what we have here. Now, every honest person, I believe, must admit to experiencing highs and lows in life. That's the way life is. And that's the way we are. We never stay long on an even path, do we? It is true of us, and it was true of Paul. And I believe that it is uh, fair to say that these ten verses give us a report of the highest peak and the deepest valley in the life of the apostle. The greatest positive experience he had with God and the darkest trial. A trial so great that he pleaded three times that Christ would remove it. And Paul's testimony here really means something to you and me. Let's not become proud of our experiences and let's not despise our sufferings. 
And I want us all to receive these lessons under three heads. And here they are. The first is this, the limits of privilege. Number two, the uses of suffering. That is God's uses of suffering in the lives of his children. And then the third thing is this, and you might be surprised to hear it, the weakness and the power of Christ. The limits of privilege. The Apostle Paul was a special servant of Jesus Christ, wasn't he? God used him to do amazing things and, and to give to us glorious explanations of the gospel. These things we know. But there is much about Paul that we know nothing about. In fact, if he were not slandered by his enemies in Corinth, we would probably never learn about a certain experience that he had with Christ. Here are the words again. Verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not Utter. It seems strange to us, perhaps, that Paul would speak of himself in the third person, but that's what he did. Jesus did this sometimes, didn't he? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said that, and he was talking about himself. And it's a good thing he was talking about himself, because no one else could give himself as a ransom for us. Paul's words tell a story about himself. And in humility, he told it from the sidelines in the third person. He must have had himself in mind because he owns the boasting connected with the experience. And he did boast. P Paul was a boaster, you know. We don't usually advise boasting. But Paul's was a good kind of boasting, and I want to tell you why. First of all, he was addressing the ungodly boasting of those who were promoting themselves in the church. They presented letters, perhaps lists of references and accomplishments as well. And they did this to, to certify their value as leaders and teachers. They were really something, you see. They had letters. Where are your letters, Paul? Why should we listen to you? You're a small man. You're ineloquent. Why, you don't even charge fees for your speaking engagements. What kind of apostle are you? These kinds of accusations were being made. And the Christians at Corinth were hearing them and beginning to believe them. So Paul took up the uncomfortable task of listing his qualifications. And uh, you can read them throughout the letter, and especially chapter 11. And when you do read them, notice 
that they did not include fees and letters. There is no list of earnings, no references from satisfied customers, no reports of church planting successes or sellout crowds of applauding ticket holders. None of that. He reported on his trials, his weaknesses. God's certification came in the context of suffering. Then, then consider that even the report of the vision is presented 14 years after it happened. He didn't parade himself as Jesus' best friend forever and, and, and prove it by talking about this vision. That was not his way. He, he gave his conversion testimony repeatedly, but never this 14-year-old vision, at least not until he feels almost forced to do so in this letter. And then finally, remember that Paul really was boasting in ways known to the saints throughout history. In boasting in his weakness, he was boasting in the Lord. Maybe you know these words from Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You boast in these things, and Christ will be honored. Now, what was this vision? I don't know. And uh, you don't know either. In fact, Paul himself didn't know it completely. In the body, out of the body, he was not able to tell. What he did know, and what he reported in this letter, is that he was drawn up to heaven, the third heaven, as he put it, paradise, and that he heard things that cannot be spoken. What did he hear? Where exactly did he go? How long was he there? How did he get back? We don't know. And, you know, it's good that we don't know. This is not an experience that you and I should seek. It was unique and, for the most part, unknowable to us in this life. But what a blessing this must have been for Paul. He enjoyed it. He remembered it as he was able. But at the same time, he was put in a place of risk. The risk of inflating the value of the vision and thus inflating his own value in his own mind. And I say that because of what's coming in the next verses. Now, while you and I cannot make a claim like this, and we ought not to seek an experience like Paul's, 
We can, and most of us probably have, experienced special times of blessings, blessing from the Lord. Positive, feel-good spiritual moments when we really enjoy the blessings of God. And we may be tempted to think more of ourselves than we should. That we really are special gifts to the church. God does some great things for you, and you begin to own them as if you deserve His favor or are better than other people or somehow singled out as privileged. Well, we're all privileged, aren't we? We're in the family of God. We have Jesus as our friend, our brother, and our king. And we have countless blessings because of our adoption into God's family. But we must never allow the blessings to puff us up. Don't let that happen. Humbly give thanks. Enjoy what God has done for you. And boast in your weakness. Paul was a privileged person. He really was. A VIP, we might say. But there was risk in this, even for the apostle. Paul was placed in danger through privilege. And the danger was the temptation to boast in his own strength. So God put suffering in his life. And he puts suffering into all of our lives, doesn't he? So let's think a little bit about Paul's particular trial, God's design in bringing it. And then, as we do, if your own trials come to mind, think about those as well. Christ sent Paul a thorn in the flesh. It was a messenger of Satan, but as with all of Satan's intentions, God overruled. He used the darkness for his own good purposes. That's what God does. And in this case, the Lord's purpose was to protect Paul from pride. Here it is, verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the, fle in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You, you all know, I think, that my family lived in Uganda for a time in a remote region in the northeast called Karamoja. Some of you have been there. Karamoja is called by some the land of thorns. And that's a good name because the place is just loaded with thorn trees. And the thorns are hard and pointy and very strong. The Karamojong people use thorn bushes to surround their villages for security. And it's a very effective way of keeping the enemy out, I'm here to tell you. I once got a bloody cut on my balding head by just walking under a tree and lightly brushing against a thorn. They can hurt, but they can also be managed. Just watch where you're going, watch where you're stepping, and if a thorn gets you, wash it, 
and wait. Healing will come. Paul's image is stronger. He did not want his readers to think that his trial was a manageable irritant. Paul's thorn, some say stake would be a better English word to use here, but his thorn was not a mere nuisance. It was an abiding agony. It's not known exactly what it was. You can read the studies and collect a nice list of possibilities. Most say it was a physical affliction of some sort. But whatever it was, it was painful and brought Paul to a place of pleading. It must have been really bad because, as far as we know, Paul did not repeatedly beg for relief from his other really painful trials, like receiving 39 lashes from his enemies five times. 2 Corinthians 11.24, five times. What was it like for Paul to endure that kind of torture a second time, remembering the pain of the first? Would you have pleaded for relief if you were faced with a second, third, fourth, and fifth beating? No record of Paul seeking such relief. He might have, of course, we don't know, but, but Scripture doesn't record it. And yet this thorn, this verse 7 thorn was so painful, so agonizing, that Paul repeatedly begged that Christ would take it away. But it remained. Why? Why did it remain? Let me give you two reasons, two ways that God used suffering in Paul's life. The first thing is specifically mentioned in the text. God's design was to keep Paul from becoming conceited. And that's not difficult to understand. Christ blessed Paul in ways unknown to anyone else. And he loved Paul too much to allow blessing to stand alone. He combined it with suffering in order to protect Paul from himself. So brothers and sisters, do not despise the hardships that come. And they do come. They are God's loving instruments that he uses to show you that he is great and you are weak and that he is strong for you. Because if you experience only positive, affirming, comfortable things, you will begin to think too highly of yourself. And that is far more dangerous than any trial that comes. If everything always goes well, then how will you know that you're trusting in Christ? How will you recognize your own weakness? And if you don't recognize your own weakness, how will you ever discover the power of Christ? You won't. And that's the point. It's not that Jesus delights in your pain. Don't think that. That's not the case at all. He is a sympathetic high priest. He has compassion on you. He knows how you feel, and he knows because he's been here. He's felt the same trials. But in his sympathy, he wants you to trust him, rely upon him, and receive power 
from him. That's what he wants. Your weakness and your recognition of your weakness is the means that he gives to you to call upon him to receive his power. And that's why Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And weakness exists in many different forms, doesn't it? For Paul, it was a physical weakness, probably, along with a trajectory toward pride. For you, it may be other things. But I would be very surprised to learn that there is even one person here who is not right now conscious of some kind of weakness. And if you are like me, and I think like most people, then there are times when you feel spiritually dull and drained, tempted even to put off prayer and distract yourself so that you can avoid the deeper matters of life. That's another kind of weakness, isn't it? Prayerlessness. Spiritual sloth, we sometimes say. Do you ever feel that? I wonder if these words from C.S. Lewis resonate. The truth is, I haven't any language weak enough to depict the weakness of my spiritual life. If I weakened it enough, it would cease to be language at all, as when you try to turn the gas ring a little lower still, and it merely goes out. If you have ever felt that way, if you're feeling that way now, I have good news for you. You are in the place of recovery if you seek Him. Now seek Him. Confess your weakness and believe that He has the power to, to energize you and to bring you along in holiness. He has the power to give you strength to endure the physical hardships that come so that you can honor Him in suffering. He has the power for you to put down your pride. He is able. Believe that He is able and seek Him. It is to the humble that God gives grace. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Paul's problem was not really the thorn as painful as that must have been. That affliction, that thorn, whatever it was, was not the real disease. In truth, it was the treatment. And it was the treatment for a far deeper condition, namely pride, self-reliance. God's design in this was to protect Paul from pride. Maybe he has that in mind for you. But that's one thing. The second thing is this. God did not remove the thorn so that Paul <clears throat> would learn to pray and learn to rely on grace. And Paul did pray. <clears throat> 
And uh, the Lord heard his prayer. He didn't do what Paul begged him to do, but he heard him, and Paul kept praying. Paul knew when to pray, and I suppose he knew when to stop praying. And we know that Christ heard him, and we know that he answered the prayer because the answer is recorded in the text. Let me read it to you. Here's the answer, verse 9. But he said to me, Christ's answer to the prayer. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There it is. The grace of Christ is sufficient. Do you believe that? It was for Paul, and it is for you. It really is. Never be embarrassed to go to him in weakness. Never. Rejoice that he will receive you, and he will provide for you. Do you want the power of Christ to rest upon you? Face your weaknesses. Go to Jesus and plead with him. Not to make your life easy, but to strengthen your faith and your walk. I have heard it said that you will learn that Christ is all you need if Christ is all you have. And sometimes God seems to remove much of life's support in order to draw one of his children close. I don't know this personally yet. But I know some people who do. And maybe you know some people who do. Maybe you are among them. I should say that Paul did not sin in his prayer. It was good for him to want relief, and it was good for him to pray for relief. You do the same. But life may not shape up the way you want. Well, go to Jesus and tell him that too. And then rest in his love, plead for his strength, and rely on his grace, which is always, always sufficient for you. When you are weak, then you are strong. Now let's think more about Christ, his weakness and his power. Near the end of the letter, Paul wrote these amazing words, for he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. So, so Jesus was also weak. Not in every way. He was without sin. But in many ways, we might say in every other way, he was weak. His whole life was weakness when you think about it. He was despised, rejected by his own people, falsely accused. He was called a demon and a drunkard and a glutton, an illegitimate child, a Sabbath breaker, a promise breaker and a blasphemer. He, he went uh, to a funeral and wept for his deceased friend and the family. He was deeply troubled by the betrayal of another friend. He felt every blow that came to him and every word of mockery hurled at him. Did Jesus feel the weakness that Paul felt? And that we all feel, yes, he did. 
Is he able to sympathize? Yes. But can he really appreciate what it means to plead for relief the way Paul did three times? Yes, again. Turn back the clock from Paul's day in your mind just a couple of decades to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed three times for the cup to pass. But with that prayer was the recognition that his Father's will must prevail. And that's the way to pray, always, for all of us. Jesus did not sin in asking because he was willing to accept the will of his Father. This does, by the way, uh, put to rest the idea that you can discern God's leading through feelings of peace. Jesus was in agony as he thought about what was coming. The climax of Jesus' weakness, of course, came when he gave his life for your sins. He was crucified in weakness. Not that he had no power, but that he chose not to use his power to destroy his enemies or to escape their judgments. But he submitted to weakness and suffering and death for your sake. It's good for us to think much about the cross. God loved you by giving his son. Jesus loved you by giving his life. The fullness of God's wrath for your sins was poured out on Christ so that you would be free from the condemnation that you deserved. Praise the Lord. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. The grave was not able to hold him. He rose in power. He lives by power. He provides power to all who come to him in weakness. And I hope you believe this. I hope that you can say with the Apostle Paul, when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus knows you, is present with you, he is tender toward you, and he will provide for you. He he completely gets how broken the world is and how difficult it is to live among the pieces. He understands, he sympathizes, and he is pleased to give you the strength you need to face the trials of life. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the promises and commands of Scripture. We thank you for the word that has come to us this evening. And uh, we pray that you would help us to learn the lessons in this text. We want to honor you in life and in death. We want to honor you in times that are comfortable, but also and especially during times when suffering comes. Help us to be faithful to you, to persevere through them, and to draw from our Savior the strength we need to abide. We love you. We give you our praises and plead for your help in the name of Christ. Amen.